Green, Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And I am going to be um, your presenter today and um, potentially my, my other co-presenter, um, Leo, is um, running a bit late. Um, but that won't stop us from uh, discussing and um, starting off, I guess, um, some reporting on some of the latest um, kind of developments in, you know, the ongoing kind of fight for a better world at Green Left at Green Left Radio. And, um, yeah, I guess before I, I start, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. I like to acknowledge that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land, um, and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right. So, um, the first kind of program I'll first kind of bit of news I kind of want to get into, actually, is this is a bit of a kind of headline kind of news story that has um, that has dominated the headlines for like the past week. And that is the, the kind of massive kind of heat wave that is um, currently occurring in, uh, in, in the United Kingdom. But it's also occurring, I guess, in parts of Europe. And we are seeing um, we are seeing temperatures we're seeing the united kingdom reach temperatures of around over over 40 degrees in parts of england and in fact that um it is actually breaking um records in terms of the heat because you know probably many of our listeners um are aware the united kingdom um has a much cool um cool it has generally a very cool cool climate um and Um, and, um, yeah, so basically, um, the, um, basically, yeah, it's unusual, um, hot, it's been unusually hot, um, and it's actually having a massive kind of impact politically on, um, on, on the, on, on, um, you know, basically, ha- um, the United Kingdom has declared a national emergency, um, there have been deaths um, caused as a result of the heat waves, and one of the kind of things because the United Kingdom um, naturally has a much cooler climate, you know, the, all the infrastructure in terms of the housing and, and so on is just is um, generally is not actually equipped to prepare for these um, for these heat waves. Now, I think probably one of the um, one of the other things um, is. <sighs> Um, is, is, I think there's a clear, actually, much like, you know, 
much like how the establishment has kind of attempted to kind of downplay the entire climate crisis, and in fact, including our own government, um, the the um, which we're going to be, which is going to form part of a discussion um, soon, is you know the, there's actually almost a, like a deliberate attempt by the conservative kind of um, media to actually downplay the seriousness of this heat wave, and in fact. There was actually a news, um, there was actually a news, you know, on national television on one of the more conservative kind of programs. There was actually a story where basically, um, a meteorologist was kind of talking about the kind of seriousness of this, of this heat wave, of the, of the heat waves and, you know, how there's actually a lot of, um, we have a lot to kind of be concerned about. Um, it's not, um, and, what was funny was the conservative kind of TV presenter at the time who were in, who was interviewing this meteorologist, you know, one um, said things along the lines of, oh, but isn't it nice weather and aren't you being a bit alarmist? Um, like almost kind of like the, it's like this deliberate kind of downplaying um, from, from the right on the actual nature of the climate crisis. And in fact, in response to, uh, in response to this, um, this heat wave that is currently engulfing Europe, you know, there is, um, there's almost like this, uh, there's, um, the experts are saying that even in, in Australia, we can expect to see that these, these, um, that these extreme weather events are going to become even more extreme while, you know, um, Melbourne and, um, Sydney have frequently reached, um, 40 degrees and 40, 40 Celsius. There's actually a, a very real possibility that they're going to go, um, that it's going to go into 50 degrees over time. Now, um, that's, I think, one of the, I think one of the kind of ongoing kind of challenges. Um, and I think we really much need to kind of build a client movement. And I think, you know, um, I think that the kind of this is another reflection on why we we need to urgently kind of act on the climate crisis, and that there's you know we need to basically you know make a rapid um, transition to a zero carbon economy because these extreme weather events are just going to get worse over time. Um, anyway, I might conclude this um, kind of discussion, and I'll just go play um, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Three CR Radio Thon Fundraiser, three to seven PM Saturday, twenty third of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces, bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, capitalism, and the future. Zelda Grimshaw from Blockade Australia. Dr. Colin Long, sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall and Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends Les Thomas and Maxine Fink. Followed by Sooty Owls. Refreshments, raffle and fun. Climate, capitalism and the future. Uprise Radio and Stick Together event. 3CR fundraiser. Saturday, July the 23rd. 3 to 7 p.m. Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road. Tram 11 will get you there. Stop 30. $10 solidarity. No one turned away.
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we were just having, I was just, we were just having a bit of a discussion. We were just having a discussion about the kind of, the kind of heat waves that are currently engulfing Europe right now, where we're seeing, um, we're seeing weather that, um, where we're seeing, um, New records being hit of over 40 degrees in, in the United Kingdom. And I guess on the nature kind of the crisis is that, you know, there potentially thousands of people might be, um, die of, um, of heat waves. And of course it's getting, it's the seriousness is so severe that even, um, the government within the United Kingdom that has declared a national kind of emergency over these heat waves is even saying that, you know, health and fit, fit people are also at risk. And we can't just imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, if you're a member of a kind of runnable part of the population or if, if you're in, in living in much worse kind of conditions or poor housing that you would, you know, be able to actually, you would, it would be a real kind of struggle in terms of being able to kind of survive this massive kind of heat wave caused by human induced climate change. Now, a lot of news story I kind of wanted to kind of present on is, is this kind of recent kind of development, which is the previous kind of coalition government was, um, attempting, um, was trialing, um, a scheme as part of, in free hospitals under the, under the, um, previous government. And this is something actually very, it's actually something very simple is, and kind of basic. Um, it is simply the question of using inclusive kind of language on, on the, on the, on the, on, on the form, on a Medicare form. And put this, um, new, this form, Used and when it when it came to describing um, who someone's parent is, when making a writing description of who your parent is, the gender neutral term birthing parent was utilised, which I think is actually like you know a positive kind of um, a positive kind of thing, you know, because it encompasses kind of like the diverse uh, experiences of you know trans um, of trans people of the trans community of non-binary, and however. Um, when it came to, um, gut, um, when it came to, from the perspective of Bill Shorten, who is the Minister for Government Services, he has actually actively kind of intervened to ensure that the term mother is used instead. Now, this may seem like, I think, you know, a small kind of thing, 
But it actually, this is actually kind of like, I think, an important kind of issue, I guess, of inclusion. The fact that Bill Shorten and the Labor Party have only necessarily responded to this because they have that because of right-wing kind of backlash and right-wing publications such as the the Daily Telegram, um, and you know the, the the fact that there was some concern raised about the term. I think this is actually you know I think it is quite outrageous that you know Bill Shorten has actively kind of intervened in this, and it doesn't do anything in terms of advancing. You know, in fact, it actually buys into the kind of right-wing kind of um, transphobia. And, and I think, you know, this is, I think the fact is, this, this was actually a po- one po- a positive thing that the government was moved to, as symbolic as it may be. And the fact that the, the government, um, that Bill Shorten has kind of actively intervened to ensure that it, and that it, that it doesn't, um, that it doesn't go ahead, I think is quite, you know, I think it is quite, um, it is quite, you know, it just shows how far we have to go in terms of fighting for, um, trans rights and inclusion. Yeah, um, I'll just go play um, a quick. I'll play a quick. Um, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on. Actually, I might go play a bit of a song. Actually, I think I'll play um, Nina Simone. Um, I wish I knew how, and then we might go into some more news stories. You are listening to Green Left Radio.
Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Now, the first, um, I was just going to, um, before um, some of the upcoming interviews that we have for the program, I was going to play a recording of a public forum that Green Left organised recently. Um, it was a launch of a pamphlet titled uh, Asylum, a Socialist View of the Refugee Crisis, um, which has been published by um, Resistance Books, and it is a pamphlet kind of exploring like the whole issues of refugee rights in uh, international and global contexts, and, pre- and it's a attempt to kind of present a socialist view on of the refugee crisis and what are kind of the solutions to address um to address the challenges and the oppressions that refugees face on a daily basis at the hands you know of you know our cap of our capitalist governments and the injustices that are regularly dealt so this is a recording of a speech by An- um Andrew Batali um who is a who was a member of socialist alliance and um and a refugee rights activist so yeah hope listeners enjoy you're listening to Green Left Radio, FreeCR, 855 AM. Um, so I've been asked to speak tonight um, as someone who's involved in the refugee movement in Nam or Melbourne. Um, but full disclosure, I moved back here about 12 months ago. So um, I'd really like to acknowledge the work that people like Hassan and Marie and Atena have been doing and other people in this room um, for many years now and um, acknowledge that they have a wealth of knowledge um, that's, you know, beyond mine. <laughs> um, so I've only got 10 minutes. Um, I'm going to, so I'm hoping to speak to a socialist perspective of the refugee crisis. Um, we need to understand this crisis um, in a global uh, context to begin to address the root causes alongside continuing the sort of activism that we do every day. Sadly, we know that the appalling treatment of refugees in Australia is only one part of the global picture when it comes to refugees. According to the UNHCR, at the end of 2021, there were some 89.3 million people uh, globally who had been forced to flee their homes. So of these people, about 27.1 million were were refugees, 4.6 million were um, asylum seekers, and many more were um, displaced, uh, living in limbo in camps, Um, and many who are stateless. So these figures equate to something like one in every 88 people um, in the world um, displaced. So we're talking about really huge numbers here. So why are we in a situation where so many people across the globe have been um, and continue to be forcibly displaced? I think we can make a fairly strong and uncontroversial argument here tonight that um, Western imperialism and the inherent inequalities um, of the global capitalist system are directly responsible for this. Capitalism is an inherently unequal global economic system that divides the world along the lines of poverty and wealth. So we can consider many examples of um, when wealthier nations have either openly or covertly supported violent regimes in poorer countries, enabling these regimes to visit violence upon people and forcing them to flee for safety. 
we can think about the US selling weapons um, to Saudi Arabia, which were then used to um, uh, bomb places like Yemen and Gaza. We can think about the UK providing arms to both sides in the Iran-Iraq war um, because it was economically advantageous to the UK. Um, and we can think about things like, you know, 20 years of intervention, um, Western intervention in Afghanistan. So armed conflicts in these countries invariably lead to the persecution of ethnic groups and minorities, um, disruptions to food and medical supply change, uh, chains, deterioration in living conditions and destruction of the natural environment and resources. So we're really talking about people who are living in um, crippling poverty sometimes. Um, the common thread along the world, uh, across the world, sorry, is that Western countries such as the US and including Australia under both Liberal and Labor governments intervene in poorer countries under the guise of bringing stability. Um, however, what they're actually doing is intervening to protect, to protect um, capitalist self-interest um, and promote their own political and economic interests. Um, and these are the interests of the ruling classes and corporations. So we know that Western imperialism is responsible for creating these circumstances that lead to people being forced to flee. Um, but we also know that capitalism actively works to stop refugees from finding safety when they flee their home countries. Um, indeed, at every turn, wealthy countries attempt to sort of divert the refugee problem um, to other places. The burden of taking in refugees is disproportionately and overwhelmingly carried by um, low and middle income countries. So um, figures from Amnesty International um, estimate that around 85% of um, the global refugee population is actually hosted by um, countries like Jordan, Turkey, Sudan, Bangladesh, and some of the largest um, refugee camps in the world are in Bangladesh. So essentially, wealthy countries are running around furthering their own self-interest and chasing profits while creating destabilisation in poorer countries and then imposing brutal border policies um, to protect or sorry, to keep people from seeking safety. Um, we're really familiar with the cruel and punitive policies um, enacted under um, our sovereign borders um, policy here in Australia. Um, so boat turnbacks, offshore processing. Um, but this militarisation of borders is actually happening around the world. So um, one of the more recent and sort of quite literal examples of a border wall is um, the Mexico-US uh, southern wall. But, you know, around the world in Europe, we see um, walls have been built in Poland, Spain, um, uh, Greece, Calais in France um, to keep refugees out. Um, and what we know about these border walls is that they don't, um, stop people from attempting to seek safety. Um, they just push people towards more dangerous options. And we've all seen, um, you know, countless times that, you know, harrowing footage of people who have been, um, for example, fleeing across the Mediterranean or the English Channel. Um, so in 2022, the UK government will pay uh, French authorities an estimated £54 million to stop people attempting to cross the English Channel um, on the, the French side. Um, the UK has also recently shored up a £120 million deal um, to deport UK asylum seekers or asylum seekers um, entering the UK to Rwanda. Um, and Rwanda is a country with well-known shortcomings in its treatment of refugees. Um, closer to home, the Australian government um, last financial year, just gone, spent $957 million um, in maintaining offshore border policies. So it seems that outsourcing border control um, is an essential feature of capitalism today. 
Um, in the asylum pamphlet, um, Nathan Akehurst um, points out that outsourcing border control to poorer nations reduces financial and political costs um, to the countries that are doing this and essentially subcontracts the violence of these policies offshore. Alongside the militarisation of borders comes the demonisation and dehumanisation of refugees, um, which you've sort of spoken to tonight, um, Hassan. We can see this language used by governments, um, so often, you know, um, using terms like illegal, uh, illegal arrivals. Um, and we know much of this language is rooted in racism and xenophobia. Um, there's also lots of moral crusading type language um, that's used, particularly around people smuggling. For example, we hear governments justifying inhumane policies by um, saying that they're saving lives at sea. And as I've already mentioned, um, we know that these policies don't save lives. They cost lives when people are forced to flee via more dangerous routes. Um, again, referencing the, the pamphlet, um, Dave Holmes makes the point um, that this sort of language around asylum, see- asylum seeking is actually really carefully designed political propaganda um, aimed at distracting us um, from the actual threat that capitalism poses. Um, and the reality is that refugees aren't a threat. Um, wealthy nations like Australia can actually afford to take in thousands or hundreds of thousands more refugees um, than they already do. All the big social issues that we're facing at the moment, so things like homelessness, um, uh, low wages, cost of living, um, inequitable access to health and education, none of these problems are caused by refugees. Um, these crises that we're facing are actually a result of unrestrained capitalism and a profit-driven system. So um, refugees are actually some of the most um, oppressed people under these um, these systems. Um, unfortunately, when we look forward, um, there doesn't really seem to be an easing of this crisis in sight. Um, in fact, the impending catastrophe of climate change will further fuel this crisis. Um, so thinking about this region, climate change will mean that many Pacific Islanders, uh, islands sorry, will be uninhabitable in the next 50 years or so, leaving hundreds of thousands of people displaced. Um, and how can we forget our um, former immigration minister and current opposition leader um, infamously joking in 2015 about water lapping at the doorsteps? Um, of Pacific Island nations. And, you know, he said this at a roundtable on immigration. So, you know, thinking about this, we aren't going to see a sudden reversal in this sort of callous attitude that um, the ruling classes have towards displaced people as a result of climate change. Um, we can already see the way the capitalist system treats people here in Australia um, who have been displaced after the recent floods in New South Wales and Queensland with you know, hundreds, um, thousands, perhaps people um, still waiting on government assistance and essentially homeless. Further afield, climate change is wreaking havoc already. For example, um, levels of food insecurity in um, places like Somalia and Ethiopia are at an all-time high. In 2020, um, they began their years with some of the um, most severe droughts ever seen and then ended the year with some of the wettest wet seasons they'd ever seen with extreme weather events such as cyclones killing hundreds. So the effects of climate change will increasingly compound the political and economic instability, poverty and persecution that sees refugees flee from consider escalating and accelerating climate change, and it's largely driven by Western imperialism and capitalist self-interest. So where do we start in trying to solve this crisis? Um, What can we do to alleviate the suffering that's imposed upon people? 
Ultimately, what we need is fundamental and transformative social change. Solutions to the refugee crisis can be found in small and large actions. So what do these actions look like? Um, they look like fighting for radically more liberal policies towards refugees. So in the, the Australian context, um, this looks like ending mandatory detention, um, ending violent border policies like boat turnbacks and instead welcoming refugees, um, pro- providing permanent protection visas um, and massively expanding our intake um, by hundreds of thousands. Um, It also looks like massive expansion of social services like public housing, welfare, access to health and education, all services that are of benefit to refugees but also the wider community. Looks like radical climate action um, and urgent mitigation of the effects of climate change um, and massively increasing aid to countries that are most affected by climate change. Um, on a bigger scale, it looks like um, continuing to dismantle the systems of capitalism that have created this crisis um, by fighting for people before profit um, and supporting movements that are doing this across the world. And lastly, of course, it's continuing grassroots activism by showing up and building the movement, um, particularly after the last three years of the pandemic where some of these movements have sort of um, decelerated. Um, and I think a big part of that is being events like this. So um, I'd also, you know, again, thank Hassan, Marie and Atena, who's online, um, for being here because this is a big part of it as well. All right. So you're just listening to a recording of a speech by um, Andrea Botali, um, who is a member of Social Alliance, who was speaking at the public forum um, titled uh, Asylum, uh, a socialist view of the refugee crisis. Um, this was a public forum that was actually organised um, in um, around on July on July 12th, um, just um, last week. And yeah, and um, basically it's, it was the launch of a pamphlet titled um, Asylum, a socialist view of the refugee crisis. And you know, basically, um, and has and has and which has been published by Resistance Books. Anyway, I'm going to I was going to cover um, some different um, positive news stories of resistance um, um, from um, from the pages of Green Left. But I guess before that, I was wanting to go play um, another play another song for the program. Um, I'm going to play Destiny by Debbie Morrow. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on Freesia. 855 AM As I drift slowly towards some headroom Feel the level 
We're just listening to Destiny by Debbie Moreau. And you're listen- and now you're back on Green Left Radio um, on FreeCR 855 AM. So I wanted to cover, I guess, a number of um, news stories from the pages of Green Left and drawing on the kind of important kind of stories of guests of resistance and of ordinary people um, resisting internet, um, resisting oppression all over the world. And I guess the kind of first kind of story to kind of highlight is, and um, this is report, this was reported in the pay in Green Left, um, and it's an article titled "Western Sydney Nurses Walk Out Over Understaffing." Now, this has been um, probably many of our listeners were probably aware um, of probably being following, you know, I guess the kind of the impacts of the COVID nineteen pandemic in in terms of the current sort of Omicron wave, and that is, you know, we are seeing a kind of consistent trend of hospitals being overloaded. Um, you know, suffering staffing shortages, etc. And in response, in um, but it's good to see that you know nurses, um, emergency department nurses at Blacktown and Westmead hospitals within Sydney walked out of work on the morning of July 18th, demanding um, better conditions. The new, the new South. This was prompted by the fact that the New South Wales government. Um, you know, has been has had a, has refused to address um, severe understaffing, and of course there were um, these nurses who went on strike. Um, you know, were supported by by nurses from intensive care units, operating theatres, general wards, and midwives. The New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association General Secretary Brett Holmes said the key issues that were motivating um, the nurses were extended patient waiting times and overcrowded EDs and a lack of safe nurse-to-patient ratios. And then he also stated that the union has been informed of high rates of burnout and uh, fatigue due to regular requests for overtime work and constant kind of double um, double shifts. And then there was also the issue of the rise in people presenting with um, flu and COVID-19 reflection, um, infections has overwhelmed EDs. And he said that many senior nurses have reduced their hours and others are leaving the profession altogether. And of course, there's been little to no reprieve for any of our members because urgent measures are not being taken. You know, um, 
that, um, they, and the, the, the nursing union said that between 50 and 100 unfounded beds were recently opened to help with demand at Blacktown and Westmead hospitals. However, there are not enough nurses rostered to care for patients in those extra and extra beds. And, um, it was in the article supported that, you know, the, Blacktown Hospital Branch Delegate from the unions, Jess, said nurses were sacrificing their own health and well-being. We are constantly short-staffed and overcrowding is rife. We've some up, had upwards of 40 to 50-plus people stuck in our ED waiting rooms during the ride, sometimes more. We are really worried about non-COVID patients having to wait alongside positive COVID-19 patients. And very much, you know, the... Um, the um, Westmead branch um, delegate Deli- Denny um, Anderson said that um, conditions inside EDs were at breaking point and we're at the cusp of yet another wave of the pandemic coupled with increased cases of flu and other rise, but already we are treating too many patients in corridors while others are sleeping the floor. And then concluding in, in the article, you know, the nurses union within New South Wales said it was continuing to push for safe staffing ratios in ED as well as other understaffed specialties, including in ED, ICUs, pediatrics and maternity. Now, another story I want to co- um, I cover that's like a bit of a kind of example of more kind of local kind of resistance coming from the trade unions, um, in particular within Australia, but Probably one of the most fascinating kind of developments that has sort of happened internationally, which we've been reporting on in Green Left, and there's also a video um, available online on our website about this. But this concerns what's been happening in the Central American country, um, country of the Caribbean, um, Panama, which is that there's been massive kind of national mobilizations against the cost of living. And these protests have actually involved tens of thousands of workers, teachers, students, doctors, and members of social movements and indigenous organizations. And these, and they have been mobilizing since July 1st and essentially protesting the high cost of living, um, because Panama, like any other country that has currently been impacted within the global um, capitalist system, has been massively impacted by this kind of ongoing cost of living crisis that we, we all um, that is all that is all and that has been experienced by working people across the world. And they're, they're being prote- they've been protesting the high cost of living, and in particular, they've been pointing to the lack of support from President Loretino Cortez's neoliberal government, and. The people um, reporting in, reported in Green Left, the People United for um, Life Alliance, a platform that brings together various social movements and trade unions from across diverse um, sectors, has you know drafted a list of 32 demands for the national government and has organised a series of national um, mobilisations. They've announced that they will take part in, dub- in a dialogue with the government mediated by the Catholic Church, and. Probably some of the other things that um, have also been happen- happening in this context has been there's been ma- um, the protesters have experienced severe police repression against protesters, um, and of course, meanwhile, you know, there's been thousands of people mobilising in cities and towns across the country on July 18 and 19, maintaining road blockades and organising pickets outside public institutions, and so this this I think. The, man, the movement is, I think, this is, I think, a very kind of positive development in terms of, you know, the kind of ongoing kind of resistance that is occurring to the kind of everyday, um, d- um, d- um, just, you know, to the, uh, on de- ongoing issues caused by our, our global capitalist system. And 
to keep for for more listeners information you know the movement is you know demanding you know this movement is continuing to mobilize and it's demanding things like a freeze on the price of fuel and basic commodities a rise in salaries and pensions a freeze on the price of medicines and resolving the lack of supply a rise in education and healthcare budgets better working conditions in the education and health sectors repair of schools hospitals roads and other public infrastructure measures to combat corruption rejection of the four Bilateral United States and um, Pananama military bases, policies to support Indigenous communities and ensure respect for their autonomy. You know, we need, they also demand the withdrawal of austerity measures and job cuts in the state's workforce, including the voluntary retirement program for public sector employees, among other things. Anyway, um, that's, um, that's, you can read more about this on, um, on greenleft.org.au um, if you go into the website. And yeah, there's even a, a very kind of a cool, expiring kind of video. But yeah, we'll, we'll continue to kind of follow the developments in, uh, Panama. And I think it is. It's definitely a very kind of important, um, story to keep following, um, especially in terms of, you know, um, the, the kind of covering the kind of ongoing resistance to the everyday struggles against, um, against capitalism. Anyway, you're listening to Green Left Radio. I'll just go play a quick announcement and we'll go on to our first interview for the program. You're listening. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Welcome back to Green Left Radio, on, um, and we are joined by Kerry Bryan. Um, Kerry um, is a long-time housing activist that has been involved in campaigns against the demolitions of public housing and against the kind of Victorian and Federal Labor Party's lacklustre at best public housing policies. So welcome to the show, Kerry. Uh, good morning, Jacob. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, so yeah, the first kind of question is, um, last week, um, Kerry, a, a report was produced by the Victorian Ombudsman into complaint handling in Victorian social housing. And I guess among the findings was a very neglectful kind of lack of maintenance. And could you give, I guess, a bit more information about that report? Yeah, sure. Uh, firstly, it's entitled investigation into complaint handling in the Victorian social housing sector. And firstly, uh, Jacob, I'd just like to put her report into a broader context, and that is that it did take the Ombudsman's Office some time to understand the depth of the problem tenants were having in getting their issues addressed. So I think it was a bit of a learning curve for, for the Ombudsman, but if I can just briefly outline my own experience back in 2019, it wasn't that great. Basically, um, me and my neighbour wrote to the Ombudsman 
complaining that our estate hadn't been um, upgraded for 20 years. And by upgrade, I just mean a refurbishment where they... It's basically where um, they have to um, look at, you know, flooring, carpeting, uh, kitchen cabinetry, painting, and those kind of capital works maintenance, which requires a fair bit of expenditure. They used to do it on a 12-year basis. Unfortunately, they don't do that anymore. So, um, as you'd be aware, estates are being left to neglect and people just have to lobby for their own maintenance. Anyway, we we wrote to the ombudsman at that time and, unfortunately, um, her office just kind of accepted the flimsy and absurd excuses given by the Department of um, Health and Human Services. So that wasn't such a great experience at that time. But since then, um, I think in 2020, the Greens started to campaign for a public housing ombudsman because they knew the extent of the these problems was absolutely critical and then uh, Deborah Glass the ombudsman herself she conducted an investigation into the terrible tower lockdown in 2020 where nine uh, public housing high-rise estates uh, the tenants were basically held captive for five days or more and she wrote a damning report about that and then after that um, Last year, she put out a call that her officer wanted to hear from public tenants about their unaction complaints. So that's just to give you some background of the context. And now I'd just like to give you some of, briefly, some of the findings from her, from the snapshot of her report. Um, And so Deborah Glass writes that we were told of properties in dire need of repairs and woefully understaffed local housing offices. People worried about the lack of maintenance making properties unsafe and dangerous neighbours not being dealt with, but most commonly that nothing happened when they tried to complain. Excuse me, I'll just take a sip of water. I'm just getting over COVID. And then she goes on to um, reference Hannah's story, and this was also published in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago. Basically, Hannah was forced to uh, cook in the lounge room on an electric fry pan because um, she had no electricity in the laundry or the kitchen. And unfortunately, this meant she couldn't wash her kids' school uniforms. So unfortunately, child protection started to get involved. But nevertheless, um, the, the, the problem at her property weren't fixed until her daughter was electrocuted. And Miss Glass knows from advocates that her report doesn't even tell the full story. Some tenants are fearful of reprisals if they speak up. Others are unaware of their right to dispute official action or inaction. And I would argue that's why uh, we need Consumer Affairs to start up the workshops that they used to fund. They were run by community legal centres to um, explain to tenants, both public and private, how to breach your landlord and how to represent yourself at VCAT. And I do think that um, us public housing tenants, myself included, we really could be using those formal tenancy processes more than we actually do and um, that might help things to move along a bit quicker. 
Um, also, Miss Glass goes on to uh, express concern that whilst the big housing bill is welcome, much of the $5.3 billion will go to community housing providers, yet their complaints mechanisms are inferior to those in public housing. She's described people's experience of the community housing complaint system as a patchwork subject to individual providers. So in other words, there's no consistent framework or set of policies and practices across the sector. And overall, she found that both public and community housing complaint systems are complex, confusing, under-resourced and in many places ineffective and inconsistent. And she realises this won't surprise anyone. Now, in response, she's proposed a single two-tiered system for all social housing complaints based on the principle of local resolution, central escalation. So in Tier 1, frontline staff will continue to handle complaints but with superior training and support than currently. And Tier 2 would be a single external escalation point for all unresolved housing grievances to a proposed new social housing ombudsman. And she believes that early resolution would greatly reduce the pressure on VCAT's tenancy list. And um, there's just a couple more points from her report. And then I'd like to respond to some of what she says. Advocates would play a critical role in assisting renters and housing officers throughout both tiers to ensure the system mm. is renter-focused. Now, I'm not sure, maybe she goes into more depth in the body of the report, but I'm not sure whether she means you know, advocates employed by the government or through um, housing NGOs. I'm not really sure. Um, it's it's not clear. Um, but she says in the interim, a social housing ombudsman could quickly be established within the Victorian Ombudsman's Office, and I think that's fair enough. Um, also... And these are important points. In order for this overall plan to work, funding for housing complaint handlers is needed and legislation to confirm the Ombudsman's jurisdiction over community housing providers. Community housing providers should be subject to Victoria's Charter of Human Rights and the government should consider including in that Act a right to housing. And I totally support that because at the moment, uh, Jacob, you might be aware this spate of redevelopment redevelopments continues. You know, not only do we have the 11 from the Public Housing Renewal Program, but they've started on a whole bunch of other um, estates where tenants don't have any human rights at all about, um, uh, you know... Why do they need to relocate? Is their housing really in a bad way? And this is, um, it, it's very traumatising for people to be told that they have to move out of where they've been living. You know, it's, it's their home for the last 30 years. So that, I think, is um, a very conspicuous example of the need to enshrine the rights of public, private and community tenants in the... Um, in the Human Rights Charter. And also, um, I think if she, she's referred to a social housing ombudsman. So um, they would need to have two distinct streams to deal with both public and community housing. And also, um, for the reasons I've just outlined, that, that you know people don't have any say over their housing, even though they're paying rent, um, ideally... 
this ombudsman or commissioner or regulator should have the power to instruct or issue directives to the state government, uh, particularly due to the spate of redevelopments which stomp all over the human rights of, of public tenants. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, thanks um, for that, Kerry. I think it's been yeah, that's been a very kind of informative kind of um, response to um, to the guess the, um, the kind of first question. And I guess the next kind of yeah. kind of important kind of discussion point is going to more kind of some of the more general kind of things. Um, you know, as someone who is a public housing act- activist, and I guess what do you kind of think um, the lack of government response says about the um, says about the way that the government thinks of yeah. and treats public housing, and what you know what would the idea ideal policies actually be in terms of addressing this whole housing crisis? Well, just to answer that firstly, the ideal policy would be to actually build public housing. I mean, if you want to have me on another time, uh, we can talk about, um, you know, what is happening with the big housing build and all the other redevelopments. But basically... um, They're only building 10% more... Um, housing on any of these estates, including the the ones that they've started, um, they've, they've earmarked recently. So um, the point I want to get to is that um, they're actually, it's pretty clear to me, they're not even trying to alleviate the, the, the extent of homelessness in Victoria or um, the public housing that the social housing waiting list, which includes, you know, public and community housing, now it's lumped into the one thing, and that waiting list is over 50,000 applications, which represents over 100,000 people. Um, Basically, what we need is a very, very big public housing program, and we need to normalise it so that it could also be accessed by the working class. But as far as... um, I just want to also address the lack of government response. Jacob, it's actually been two weeks now since Deborah Glass, the Victorian Ombudsman, released the report we've been discussing this morning, and yet the new housing minister, Danny Pearson, he hasn't had a response so far. And um, I checked I checked his media releases yesterday and there was still nothing. Um, unfortunately, also... It hasn't been uh, reported on in The Age or or the ABC. There was just that one story in The Guardian that I referenced. And um, also I'd like to say about the lack of government response, I mean, you could argue that it's all intentional and deliberate because by reducing public housing to a basket case, by just ignoring all, all the complaints and leaving everything to, to deteriorate. Because, um, you know, there's quite a lot of superficial deterioration where places are just neglected on the outside. But uh, what we do know is that structurally, uh, the majority of public housing estates were, were built, um, you know, using very solid materials and they will last a very long time. But um, it seems that the government's intention is to reduce public housing to a basket case. And can I just say um, that in relation to that point, since the creation of the new entity a couple of years ago, Homes Victoria, the scenarios Miss Glass has reported on have only gotten worse. 
Now, while it's not clear to me what the demarcation is between Homes Victoria and the new department, which is the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing, it appears that Homes Victoria has been set up as a kind of real estate vehicle, as we can see from all the recently announced redevelopment. And it seems that Homes Victoria aren't particularly interested in running the public housing system. They seem keener on bulldozing it and redeveloping it as community and private housing. But um, we tenants want to ensure that the business of running the public housing system stays within the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing. And we need a Director of Housing who's committed to strengthening and improving public housing, not letting it run down. And just if I can just make one more point, there is a... Um, the complaints office of the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing, um, they've told me quite frankly they are under-resourced and if you ring up and ask, you know, what's happening with my complaint, it's been six weeks now, do you know what they tell you to do, Jacob? They tell you to go straight to the Ombudsman. Mm. Well, I, I just thought that was pretty funny, mm. you know. Anyway, um, Kerry, we, we, we got a fun, we're sort of running a bit of time because, um, we're cutting into the, and when we're scheduled to have a next interview, but we still have a bit of time to, um, to have, I guess, one last kind of question. And I guess, um, you know, how yep. can people, you, obviously as a public housing activist, you've been involved in a whole range of campaigns. And I guess, can you tell us how people can, you know, support, um, like if there's any sort of public housing campaigns or groups yeah. to get involved in and or any, any sort of final thoughts that you like to add? Yes, um, okay, so basically the Safe Public Housing Collective has a website. You can get some useful information from that. There's a number of different uh, public housing Facebook pages. Um, there's one specifically for tenants, which is a group called Public Tenants Victoria, I think. And um, so if you just Google uh, Public Housing Victoria on fa- or on in a, in a, put it into a Facebook search, a number of different pages will come up. And also, if you keep listening to 3CR, there were some campaigns about the very serious issues at Richmond and Collingwood, because, um, you know, the government wants to do to build over the Collingwood car park, and they want to um, build 800 units at Richmond, which is just outrageous. The estate's already congested. So there have been some actions around that which have been reported on 3CR. Um, so I'd advise people to just keep listening. And um, my final thought is public housing here to stay. Greedy developers, go away. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. Um, I think this has um, definitely been a very informative um, discussion. And, yeah, we definitely need to have more, um, start re- having more discussions about public housing and housing on our program. So, yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Kerry. Thanks very much, Jacob. Bye for now. All right. We we're just talking to Kerry Bryans, um, who is uh, a public housing activist, and you know, and um, I'm talking about the current, I guess, some of the current developments in the public housing kind of arena, and why we need to fight for um, more public housing, and again, and against the kind of ne- um, negligence that happens by our governments. Alright, well, I'm going to play um, a quick announcement and then we'll go transition to our next interview. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. 
The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR. And now we are happy to have um, Alex Bainbridge, who's been a regular kind of um, guest on our program, um, who is a member of Socialist Alliance and the National Executive and has been a regular writer for Green Left, who recently wrote an article which, are going to be, which is going to be very much the kind of subject of the discussion we're going to be having um, about um, Labor, which basically is Labor's, um, Labor's which is the article titled Labor's 43% climate target is not enough. Enough. So, yeah, good morning, Alex. Hi, good morning, Jacob. Okay, so I guess the kind of first kind of discussion, and, and you kind of open up, I guess, in your article that um, Labor has kind of launched a campaign to pressure the Greens to accept its inadequate kind of 43% emissions reduction target when Palm resumes on July 26. Now, we'll talk a bit more in another question, I guess, about you know, some of the uh, machinations that have been happening between the Greens and the Labor Party. And I, but I guess to kind of start off, wh- why is it that, you know, Labor's proposed bill, which has a target of 43, 43% reduction in emissions by, I think, 2035, although you can correct me if I'm, if I'm, the buy is not um, um, accurate, is not enough? Well, I think there's a number of ways you can look at this, Jacob. But I mean, I think what it all boils down to is, the target we need for climate action is not determined by politics, it's determined by science. And frankly, there is just too much carbon in the atmosphere already and we need to be you know, pulling carbon out at emergency speed. I guess just to dramatise and highlight this, uh, right now we're in the winter in Australia, but in the Northern Hemisphere it's summertime and they're breaking heat records left, right and centre. There's been heat waves and flash fires and, uh, and so both throughout Europe and uh, China and other parts of the Northern Hemisphere. And the global average temperature for June, according to the NASA figures, is the equal highest it has ever been, ever. Um, and in England, where they've been, um, they've got the longest temperature records of any country, uh, and they're breaking all-time temperature records by sometimes a full degree Celsius, which is a very large amount when you're talking about the, the outside extreme temperature. And the thing which is most shocking about this is that this is a La Nina year. So you'll probably be aware, some people be aware that we have like some years are El Nino years, which tend to be hotter on average, and then periodically we have La Nina years, which are which are cooler on average. So this is a year which, on average, you would expect to be the cooler temperatures, which means when El Nino comes around again, um, which won't be too far off, we can expect temperature records to be broken again by by such a large margin. What this kind of, I mean, there are, there are lots of indicators. This is just, I mean, like you can't just pull out one sort of figure, but this is just 
this is just one example out of many that we are skating so close to the edge as a globe that we need to reduce our emissions at emergency speed. And they just, you know, the, anyway, the, the thing that, the thing that uh, observers of the political debates in Australia will notice if you look at it, Labor is not citing any climate evidence to justify their target. Not, there's no climate scientist saying, oh, this is the best target. They're not bringing out climate modelling to show this is how much you know, difference it's going to make. They're not doing any of those things. They're arguing on a completely political basis, which is the wrong way to look at it. We need to look at it on a scientific basis and we need to fight for the targets that we need. Hmm. So getting into kind of the next question, um, and this has been probably one of the more important kind of things that your article kind of contributes to, but the Greens and some teal independents, although I'm not, I don't, I'm not completely across what some of the teal independents have been pushing for in terms of, um, in terms of this whole parliamentary kind of debate, but the Greens have been, um, have been more the centre, I guess, of this debate, and they have been, I guess, criticised, um, you know, from certain sections of the media and the ALP for, in terms of negotiations with the ALP and the Parliament, for pu- they've basically been pushing for much stronger targets. But of course, more outrageous, there has been this accusation towards the Greens from the ALP that they've been blocking climate action for more than a decade, um, inc- um, and they cite um, their role, um, their role in opposing, I think, the carbon tax, um, going back in the early um, part when Kevin Rudd was. Prime Minister, and I guess, what is your kind of response to some of the, those accusations and those arguments that are being put forward by the ALP? Well, I think just to be fair to the Labor Party, um, the Labor Party, I don't think, is accusing the Greens of blocking climate action, but more like saying the fact that the Greens didn't support the CPRS, the what Labor called the uh, Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme and what the Environment Movement calls the Continue Polluting Regardless Scheme. What Labor says is because the Greens blocked that legislation or proposed legislation in 2009, that has set up a, a decade of inaction post that. Now, there's a whole lot of things that are wrong with that line of argument. I mean, it's, it basically it's not true. One is that the CPRS was uh, was a really bad piece of legislation, and it wasn't just the Greens, it was the entire climate movement um, that was opposed to that CPRS. And, I mean, I, I was involved in the climate movement at that time. There was, there was a, It was a really animated time for the climate movement because... Um, we just had the first walk against warming a couple of years before. Uh, there was the first climate emergency summit. Um, David Spratt's book, um, Climate Code Red, had just come out a couple of years earlier. I mean, at, at that time, there were a lot of climate action groups springing up all over the place. And it was, I mean, broadly speaking, it was, it was, you know, actually, to be honest, frankly, it was, um, a stronger climate movement in some respects then, um, uh, than now. Uh, well, obviously in some respects yes, in some respects no, but it was, it was, the point was that it was a burgeoning climate movement and the entire climate movement was against the CPRS. And, uh, look, you know, what's wrong with the argument is that, well, what we, the Greens were pushing for stronger action. Uh, the Greens at the time said that, um, the, the CPRS locked in failure, that was proof. Um, the CPRS had a measly 5% target, but, uh, even that is actually being generous to it because it was a 5% target based on offsets. Um, and at the time, the, the offsets were possibly even more dodgy than um, the dodgy offsets that, that Labor still wants to use today in 2022. Uh, and there were billions of dollars in handouts to, um, uh, to, 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 the, to the most polluting fossil fuel corporations. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a really bad piece of legislation. The Greens were 100% correct to, to block it. And... 
the reason, if you want to get, if you want to understand realistically why have we actually had a decade of inaction, well, I mean, firstly, that whole decade of inaction um, mantra ignores the fact that there was a, 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 a climate, a, a, you know, a carbon price um, from 2011, uh, although that was also not, in my view, wasn't the best legislation. Um, but the reason why we've had a decade of inaction is that the Labor Party has not taken climate change seriously, not through neither the Rudd nor the Gillard government. And it was in that context where the CPRS, which which gave Tony Abbott a um, you know a, a gift on a platter to basically run out this um, you know um, you yeah, know new taxes line, a great big tax line. Um, if if the, if the if the Rudd and Gillard governments had simply done the things that were necessary for climate action, like for example building Australia's first concentrating solar thermal power plant. Um, that would have been an inadequate action, but I would have cheered it you know, immensely because it would have been, that would have been a positive step. The CPRS was not a positive step, and what, you know, the, the reason why we've had this decade of inaction is because, essentially, if you, want to put, if you want to come down to it, Labor was actually pathetic and wimped out on the climate action that was needed, and, frankly, that is exactly what they're looking like they're doing now, um, which is why we need to push back I saw a tweet this morning by Tim Hollow who said that why is the environment movement ganging up on the Greens, uh, t- telling them to block the target, uh, block the, uh, telling them not to block Labor's um, target, when in actual fact they should be ganging up on the Labor Party, pushing for a, pushing for a for a decent climate action, which is which is what they're not doing. Yeah, and I guess the point, um, I mean, just one comment before I go into my question. I guess that in some sense uh, that kind of reflects a certain um, kind of. Uh, fatalism um, in from sections of the climate movement who are saying that because in the end I think there is there almost there is this argument because we've lived under coalition uh, um, governments for so long who have pretty much done nothing around climate change in fact made the problem worse that there's almost like this implication that oh now that Labor's gotten elected we just have to accept whatever they're giving us uh, no matter how minimal um, it actually is and in fact. Um, that gets into, I guess, my kind of next question because you were sort of um, talking about um, some of the political reasons um, that Labor is kind of pushing this target. And I guess the, the, the kind of public message that they're justifying is they're justifying this target on the basis that, oh, it's um, what they promised in the federal election. And I guess I wanted, I wanted you to see if you can unpack, does the, does the ALP really have a mandate to push a weak climate uh, target just because they they simply got elected and that was the target that they brought um, to the election. Well, look, it, it is the nature of politics that um, everybody will. Uh, there, there are multiple readings you can make of the last federal election, and, and people will read it in ways that that, that suit their own um, political beliefs. But I mean, the, the point that I would make is we have a relatively you know, better than some countries, but on average, a relatively undemocratic electoral system. So the Labor Party can get more than 50% of the seats with, you know, 32% of the vote. Um, you know, in one sense, they can claim a mandate because they got more than 50% of the seats in the lower house. But realistically, uh, people want a stronger climate action than what Labor is offering. Now, it's true, a lot of people are scared of bullying by the coalition, and there are a lot of people that their expectations are so low they will accept you know, whatever they, (laughs) whatever they can get, basically. But, I mean, I I come back to what I said at the beginning. I mean, you know, in the end, this, we can't decide this climate target based on politics. We need to decide the climate target based on, um, based on the action that is needed to, to to win a safe climate. And so going back to the election, I mean, the other points I'd make is that 
um, parties and candidates that did offer stronger climate action had their vote increased. Labor's vote decreased. So uh, that's, uh, they should have a certain amount of humility that, um, that uh, you know, that, that, that they should be open to discussion about increasing their target. And the final thing I say is this. I mean, to the extent that there is a real discussion to be had, I mean, some of the Labor Party people will say things along the lines of, well, you know, we've got uh, the Greens are just focusing on inner city seats, which is not true, but OK. Um, but they've got to win seats in, like, coal mining areas as well. And if they, go, if they push too hard, they risk the future of their whole government. Now, that's an argument they make that sounds good to a certain layer of people, but I think it is a dead wrong argument. I think that, uh, firstly, any climate action, if it does have an impact on coal miners or other workers in, in some industries, part of that climate action is guaranteeing jobs and, and livelihoods to those people that are people in communities that, that might be going to miss out by climate action. That's how you undercut Tony Abbott-style uh, great big tax, um, you know, uh, misinformation campaigns. That's one half of the answer, is that climate action requires stronger action to, to protect the people. The problem is Labor is not protecting the people in those communities. Labor is protecting the fossil fuel industries in those communities. And that's why we need to push back against them. Hmm. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we? Um, we can. Um, well, I always get to kind of conclude. Um, I guess you know, with any sort of comments on, with any sort of final comments, I guess you'd like to make, and maybe even make, you know, even though this is kind of like a point that you know, um, we do kind of bang on a lot in in terms of our free CR program about you know, but I think it it would be important to kind of conclude to end it with you know, what are the kind of solutions and measures that actually are really needed to address the climate emergency, especially in comparison to labour actually quite pathetic and weak target. Look, whatever target is adopted by the Parliament, I mean, is going to be a symbolic target. Um, the, the, really thing, the thing which is most important more than anything else is to actually stop the fossil fuel industry in its tracks. So firstly, that means absolutely no new fossil fuel developments. And at the moment, Labor is, um, you know, we've got the, the Scarborough Gas Project, we've got Beedaloo, uh, we've got Narrabri and, you know, there are 27 coal projects which are on, um, you know, the Labor Party's desk at the moment, 114 fossil fuel projects altogether. Basically, there can be no new fossil fuel uh, project developments if we are taking the climate crisis seriously. Until we say no new fossil fuels, um, there is no, the government is not taking climate change seriously, no matter what target. They could put 100% down on paper. If they're still allowing new fossil fuels, they're not taking... Um, they're not taking climate seriously. So more than anything else, we need to break the power of the fossil fuel industry. We need to say no new fossil fuel developments. Once we win that, we need to win a, a sensible, rational, practical plan to phase out the fossil fuel use that we've got so that the lights don't go out, but so that we do reduce our emissions. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Alex. And, um, yeah, just for listeners' kind of information, you can read um, Alex Bainbridge's article on the Greenleft website at greenleft.org.au and also will be in this coming paper issue of Greenleft. And the article is titled Labor's 43% Climate Target is Not Nearly Enough. Um, so, yeah, if listeners want to check that out, you can look it up at the Greenleft website. But, again, thank you very much, Alex, um, for being on our program. Thanks, Jacob. We'll see you next time. Okay, bye. <clears throat>
All right. We'll just um, talk. I'm um, speaking to Alex Bainbridge, um, who is a member of Socialist Alliance and a regular writer for Green Left about, you know, having a bit of a discussion on why Labor's 43% climate target is not nearly enough, which was the subject of a Green Left article that has just been recently produced. Now, we have at least um, 10 minutes kind of left on the program. Um, I'll go play just a quick few announcements and we'll get to go to um, give some activist news, um, some um um, some updates from the activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at buy-alliance.org, email info at buy-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Now, um, this is um, now I was going to give a bit of an update on the Green Left Activist Calendar to give a bit of an update on upcoming events that are and fundraisers and other political events that might be of interest to people living in Melbourne and within Victoria. So the first event I want to kind of highlight um, there actually is going to be. Uh, uh, a public uh, a forum at um, at uh, at um, at the Solidarity Hall, at Trades Hall, and it's going to be an evening with Mary um, Mary um, Lowell McDonald, who is actually the president of Xing Fang, and who is actually giving a visit to the recently um, re- newly restored Solidarity Hall in M- Melbourne. Join us for speeches, socialising and light refreshments. But yeah, this might be a, 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 interesting, a good event, especially for those who are interested in the Irish kind of Irish politics and, and have been on, follow the ongoing free Irish freedom struggle. The next event is on Saturday, July the 23rd. There's going to be a rally, Stop um, Turkey's Attacks on Rojava. Turkey is carrying out daily attacks on the Kurdish freedom movement and its allies in northern Syria. And this is going to be an event that's going to be at the old GPO at the corner of Burke and Lizard Street in the city. And then on, um, on also happening on Saturday, July the 23rd, there's going to be a fundraiser organised by um, Uprise Radio, a, 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 another um, free CR program, and it's going to be titled and it's a fundraiser titled Climate Capitalism and the Future, and pretty pertinent discussion, especially um, with what we were kind of discussing before with Alex Bainbridge. Um, this is going to be happening at 3 p.m. at the Black Spark Cultural Centre, 126A Gladstone Avenue in Northcote, and yeah, you can book tickets if you look up on the Face, if you look up on Facebook, fundraiser climate capitalism in the future. And I think there's also should be some details up on the Green Left um, Radio website as well. Um, and then on um, Sunday, um, July 24th, there's going to be um, there's gonna, um, from a regular musician that we promoted on FreeCR. There's going to be a gig by Les Thomas at 3:45 p.m. at the Drunken Poet, at 65 Peel Street in West Melbourne. 
Um, and then there's, um, and then on Tuesday, um, the, um, July 26th, there's going to be a public forum at the Loot Bar. Um, um, police, um, Pano Picklin, zooming in on the use of police body cameras. So I think that will be kind of an important kind of meeting. Um, and then there's, there's an online forum, Tony Birch, um, the white girl, and that's going to be happening. Um, that's, you can find details by searching up on, uh, on Facebook, um, Tony Birch, um, the white girl. I think this is an event being put on by the Moreland, um, city, um, Moreland city libraries. Um, and then on, um, Thursday, July the 28th, there's going to be, um, the annual Australian Palestine Advocacy Network annual dinner. That's going to be happening at 6 p.m. at the Aura Receptions, 149 Donald Street in Brunswick East. And yeah, if you just go on to the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, um, website, you should be able to find details. Now, on Saturday, July the 30th, um, there's going to be a United Client Rally. Um, you know, we need urgent action, 1 p.m. at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, and that, and that's going to be happening yet, yeah, but, um, that's going to be an, I think, an important kind of mobilization. Um, a, a series of different sort of climate groups have endorsed the rally, um, and along with different all sorts of left organizations. So yeah, we're hoping to make that rally as big as possible. It's demanding no new coal and gas, uh, 100%, um, zero emissions by 2035, basically a stronger climate target than what sort of Labor is pushing. And yeah, I think it will be definitely an important rally. And I think, yeah, it's going to be happening on um, Saturday, um, 1 p.m. at the State Library. Uh, and then on Sunday, August the 7th, there's going to be a forum, Natural World Environmental Activism on Screen, and that's going to be happening at 2 p.m. at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Little Longsdale Street in the city. And then on Tuesday, um, um, August 9th, there's going to be a public forum, um, the People's Up- Uprising in Sri Lanka, and that's going to be happening in person and online at 6.30pm um, with a meal from 6pm. And um, one notable thing about the public forum, it will feature kind of an eyewitness perspective on the kind of mass movement that has been unfolding in Sri Lanka, and that's going to be happening at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT. And then um, the next um, kind of events... Um, is um there's going to be um in the theatre um until Saturday August sixth sixth and if you live in Geelong the um the play by Palestinian activist um Summer Sabobi um them is going to be ha- um is going to be perfor- is going to be performing the play at seven thirty p.m. at the Art Centre eighty one Rye Street in Geelong and that's until Saturday August um the sixth so yeah hope um yeah so I think that covers um number of the kind of different events that are kind of happening today. Um, and that happening in the coming weeks. So yeah, we're getting, I guess, getting to kind of, kind of like the end of our program. Uh, I'd like to thank all our listeners and guests for being on our program this week. Um, so yeah, it's always important to cover kind of like the important kind of stories of struggle. And we're going to be, we'll be stay tuned for Earth Matters following kind of the end of this program. And then yeah, we'll, um, we'll, we'll see you all next week, um, on Friday, 7 a.m. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 800 634 206.
Arise you workers from their slumbers Arise you prisoners of want For reason in revolt now thunders And at last since the age of Kant Away with all your superstition Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap